neuro nerds and welcome. This podcast provides a spotlight for graduate students in neuroscience to tell you why the you should care about their work when you're so busy caring about your own. So hi, Tyler. Welcome. Hi, Rachel. Thank you for having me. So um, first, can you uh, tell me who you are? Can you introduce yourself? Yeah, uh, my name is Tyler Dawes. I am a graduate student in the Behavioral Neuroscience program through the Psychology Department at The Ohio State University. I am a fourth year grad student um, in the Kirby lab. Nice, nice. So can you tell me what your lab primarily looks at? So we primarily focus on the role of uh, adult neural stem and progenitor cells in the hippocampus. Um, and specifically, our, our lab's unique take on these cells is looking at how they are able to regulate their environment outside of the production of adult-born neurons, um, which is typically known as neurogenesis. So we specifically look at how these neural stem progenitor cells regulate their environment um, through either the secretion of growth factors or through um, manipulation of other niche cells. Cool. Like, what other, what other cells? Um, so I specifically look at how uh, NSPCs may uh, produce a growth factor that uh, can affect endothelia nearby or the vasculature. Okay, very cool. So why are, why are you interested in this specifically? Like what, what drew you to this? Tell me about your, your journey. So that's, a, that's an interesting story, I guess. So there, there's, I don't think anyone's scientific journey is really straightforward. Uh, everyone kind of has you know, different uh, crossroads that they have to choose to go down a specific path and, and really uh, they kind of get brought to wherever they are now. <laughs> so for me, that was, uh, I also went to undergrad at Ohio State um, and I worked with a uh, faculty member at the time named uh, Dr. Derek Lindquist, um, where we studied uh, fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. So um, how mothers ingest alcohol and how that affects um, their, their babies. Um, and we specifically looked at how it impaired learning and memory in the offspring. Um, so this got me to really think about the hippocampus and really focus on a set of uh, neuroimmune cells named mast cells and microglia in the uh, hippocampus itself. Um, and through this research, I really got interested in the molecular mechanisms that um, uh, are the interplay between cell types in the hippocampus. So. If you would have asked me my junior year, I would have told you that there was no way I was going to stay at Ohio State for grad school. I was just ready for a change. I was sick of living in Columbus. I'm not that there's anything wrong with Columbus. I just wanted to leave. Um, but then Dr. Kirby joined the, uh, the behavioral neuroscience program. And through a bunch of different conversations with her, I thought she might be a good mentor. So um, with my interest in the hippocampus and molecular mechanisms, um, it was really nice to get a kind of lab environment change to a lab that studied um, a very specific cell type and the more cellular molecular biology approach uh, as opposed to the behavioral approach that I was doing in undergrad. Uh, it also helps that uh, my long-term girlfriend stayed in Columbus, uh, so that was kind of easy to choose to stay here, um, as well as uh, I really wanted to stay in a small lab. Um, for me, it was just going to be a better problem-solving environment and more hands-on, especially in a brand new lab. And then um, I knew that Dr. Kirby was probably going to be a fit for a mentor. Like looking back on it, um, I would have put a lot more preference on 
Dr. Kirby as a mentor as opposed to what she was studying. Um, I love what she was studying and I, I love um, her mentorship. They both worked out really well for me, luckily, I guess. Um, but she uh, is an exceptional endurance athlete uh, outside of her time in lab. And I knew that someone with that good of a work-life balance would be really healthy for me to kind of work with as I pursued through grad school. Yeah, that's the Kirby lab, super sporty. <laughs> yeah, we all have we all have our ticks, at least in the graduate students and uh, Dr. Kirby herself. I think don't don't all of you guys do like because I know Josh runs. Yeah, so the other grad student in my lab, Josh Reeskamp, is as close to being uh, a pro level marathoner as possible without actually being a pro. Um, <laughs> Liz uh, qualified for women's uh, state triathlon last year in the state of Ohio. So like she's in the top, whatever, 15% of women in triathlon in Ohio. And I just kind of bounce around from sports. I'm no near, nowhere near as good as they are at what they do. Uh, I'm more of like a recreationalist, but uh, I, I did a, a half Ironman during my second year of grad school, which is a really bad idea. Uh, don't try to balance doing a master's thesis and, and training for a half Ironman, you will go crazy. Um, and, but I really just like to ride a bike around, so <laughs> not nearly as good as they are, but we all kind of have our quirks. So sporty though. Meanwhile, <laughs> at, the, at the other end of the hallway, we, we do coffee. That's like <laughs> the main <laughs> coffee yeah. and wine. Um, it gets us all through, you know? Yeah, yeah, we all have our own thing, right? So, um, so can you talk a little bit about what you're primarily working on right now? And, yeah. you know, so I, general neuro audience. Yeah, so I kind of, I mentioned that briefly, um, but I think more specifically, I'm looking at the different ways that stem cell produced factors can infect their, can affect their microenvironment. So specifically, I look at how uh, stem cells in the adult hippocampus um, express and secrete vascular endothelial growth factor. Um, and I look at how that, through this secretion, they are able to communicate with cells in their environment, as well as regulate their own proliferation um, and uh, maintain stemness through the expression of this growth factor. Um, so it's really just looking at how stem cells are able to interact with other cells in their environment. I think that's the biggest takeaway from my work currently. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I'm just kind of putting this together now, but I know that you, I mean, we were just talking about how sporty everyone is in the Kirby lab and you were focusing for a second on, um, on voluntary exercise mm -hmm. as a manipulation for what you wanted to look at. So can you talk about that for a second? Yeah, so that's actually really the reason why I originally uh, thought working with Liz would be uh, awesome. And then, you know, you kind of come to, um, maybe we couldn't get exercise working just right, or we didn't really see the end game with the manipulation um, with how we were looking at, uh, how, how we were specifically looking at stem cells at that moment. Um, but yeah, that's the, the reason why I started in the Kirby lab and why I was super interested in her, in her work was because um, of like these well-known benefits of exercise in both human and rodent models on, on the brain and cognitive capacity um, and really seeing how exercise was able to 
um, affect hippocampal neurogenesis was was a, a big reason as to why I started. However, you know, I, I didn't end up staying with that long term. Um, however, there's a huge field of research. Well, huge is a relative term <laughs> in terms of neurogenesis is a, a big portion of that field is, is related to exercise research. Um, so, and we always send like little art, like the newest article published about like why endurance exercise is good for the brain uh, to each other, like uh, myself, Josh, and, and Liz, whenever they come out. Yeah, I mean, that's, I can't believe it took me this long to put all of that together, but that's really interesting, and I'm, I'm sad that that wasn't able to work out, but. It's okay. I mean, you know, as well as everyone, like, you, your first go at this never really works out, and it's about, it's about problem solving and figuring out, figuring out what works for you and what's a unique and interesting question. Yeah, I, I guess more from a personal side, like that would have been a really cool narrative to have like, oh, look, we do all this and we can like show its benefit in, uh, in lab mice. Mm -hmm. um, so with the research that you're doing, why should the public care? Like why is your research important? So I think when you talk about stem cells, it's very easy to skew or um, kind of veer off the track into this very gray area of science. There's a ton of pseudoscience right now that's specifically related, related to stem cells as products and uh, stem cell research. Um, and then uh, the, the definitely dark side of it is predatory stem cell clinics. So generally speaking, the more we know about stem cells and how they function and how they can be used um, to you know, treat uh, medical diseases of, of any sort, not just neuro, but um, kind of any reason why uh, someone would go through a stem cell therapy. It's, it's, we need to have this base foundation of stem cells and how they are useful and how they function in the body um, before we really start pursuing the kind of therapy aspects of them. I mean, this is both for public education, so they know what is possible from a stem cell therapy, um, as well as safety. So we can't be doing manipulations to stem cells and just putting them into people without knowing what those manipulations will do and how it will affect the micro environment that we are um, placing the stem cells in. Um, and this is something that, you know, predatory stem cell clinics are really bad about. They just tell you, like, we'll give you this thing that we're calling a stem cell and we'll put it into your body and it'll magically fix every single thing that you're looking at. Um, and that's really harmful to consumers and the general public. Um, so the, the most important part of my research is kind of figuring out these baseline questions so that we can hopefully in a number of years use safe and effective stem cell therapies. So can we talk about these clinics for a second? Because mm -hmm. I feel like for people that are desperate for, for an answer to whatever medical ailment they're having. Um, so they turn to these clinics that claim to cure whatever medical ailment they're having using stem cells. Where do they get these cells? What are they? Why, why do they believe that injecting them into um, a patient uh, would cure them? So 
there's good marketing. <laughs> good marketing is the first answer. Um, second, they usually, I think the most accessible and most common way is to take a little bit of fat and spin it down, uh, which they claim somehow in like, sorry, let me restart. So I think that the most common thing that these clinics do is they'll take a, a little bit of fat for, uh, and in your fat cells, there are mesenchymal stem cells or MSCs. They'll somehow spin those down and heat it up and say that through that process, they are able to derive stem cells from those fat cells, which is not entirely accurate. Um, it's not quite positive what they're exactly giving you when they inject that into you. Um, they usually, tr they can treat them with like some sort of growth factors and, and other things. However, um, it's, it's different at every clinic that you would go to. Um, and they just kind of claim these amazing benefits. Um, and there's, there's a lot of different gradations in this field. There's also like platelet rich plasma they'll, um, and, and kind of other things like that, that I'm not as well like versed in. Um, but it's, it's, it's more just like, you're right, they're preying on desperate people that don't really have anywhere else to turn. Um, it's also like outside of insurance, so you're paying everything out of pocket. Um, and the, it's, it's not legal to do, but it resides in enough of an FDA gray area um, with like the types of manipulations that you're doing that they can get away with it and that there's so many of them that the FDA just can't come and shut down every single one of them because none of them are connected, right? It's a bunch of independent practice, practicers um, kind of doing these manipulations and uh, potentially harming a, a lot of people in the process. Well, you know, after a quick Google search, we do have the premier stem cell clinic in downtown Columbus, so. Yeah, that's actually what I would recommend. If, if anyone has, is kind of if anyone's never really heard of a predatory stem cell clinic, just Google one and see like how close one is to you. You'd be really surprised. Um, I think largely through different media outlets, uh, people hear about stem cell clinics, but they think like, oh, that's only a thing in Florida or California where like stem cells are huge. But like stem cell research is in its infancy, yet we have these clinics that are everywhere uh, around you. If you just do a quick Google search, like stem cell clinics near me. Um, and then the, like, the other side of it that is potentially not as harmful, but uh, just as potentially as treacherous are like, if you Google like stem cell lotions and stuff, like they have all of these lotions that are enriched with stem cell factors that if you rub on your skin, it'll get rid of wrinkles or like all that different, like hand wavy science that they, like that's, that's just someone separating you from your money for a product that is definitely not going to work. Is it weird that I find that idea of a lotion kind of gross? It's really like, yeah, it's super gross because like the best way to get that would be to like do lipo on a bunch of people and then stick that into a lotion. And I mean, there's a lot of gross things about like cosmetics and everything as is, but I don't know, that just does not sound uh, like something I would want to put on my skin or in my body. Yeah, just thinking about that is like, if Someone hears this and is super interested in like kind of these scammy stem cell type things um you should look up paul knopfler's blog k-n-o-e-p-f-l-e-r um it's it's called the niche it's all about like kind of these like sketchier things he actually has a really good really accessible book um about you know like the shadiness of uh, it, it's a good introduction to like stem cell biology and everything and also like the shadiness that is out there um he was like one of the first persons 
people, to, to my knowledge at least, to put, put together a map of all of these sketchy different stem cell clinics that are super illegal in the United States. So, oh, I just like, I get so upset even thinking about these stem cell clinics, especially when people, you know, have macular degeneration and get stem cells injected into their eye, um, quote unquote stem cells injected into their eye, and then now they're blind. And yeah, very crappy. And I don't like it. And it makes me sad because it, it, it sets the field back a long, long way. So the more popular these bad events are, the less likely people are to fund stem cell research, the less likely they are to, um, when, when a stem cell like therapy is approved, to go and actually get it. Um, you're, you're setting a bad precedent um, on something that could potentially in, in five, 10 years maybe be super, super helpful to the general population and like well-regulated. Um, and it, it just, it sucks that uh, a very small but very vocal community is kind of ruining, could potentially be ruining it for, for everyone else. Yeah, because I have, I have basically an aunt who had multiple myeloma who was treated with stem cells and it, I'm not entirely sure what it did, but I know that it was very helpful in her recovery from this cancer. Um, and it's just upsetting that it's now that this kind of research has been co-opted to cause more harm than good. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah. yeah, getting getting back to the brain. Uh, <laughs> so that, that was a fun tangent. Um, but so back to the brain. Um, can you talk a little bit about adult hippocampal neurogenesis? I know that this is a a debate um, in the field, even though all your work is based on it. Um, so can you talk about that? Yeah. So. I'm, so I should start, I'm no, by no means an expert in human adult hippocampal neurogenesis. All of the manip manipulations I do are in mouse models. Um, however, uh, <laughs> it was largely taken for granted, taken as fact, however you want to call it, um, for about the last 20 years that neurogenesis was a thing that was occurring in the adult human brain to some extent. So neurogenesis has to happen. That's how you create your central nervous system in development. You are producing new neurons that, you know, go and form the rest of your brain. So for a very long time, um, I believe it was uh, Ramon Santiago Icahal, what made the no new neuron doctrine. So that meant once your brain was formed um, in your, you know, formative years, you no longer were able to add new neurons to it. Um, what you lost is what you lost, and that was the end of it. Um, however, in the 90s, I believe, um, it was found that um, one specific region in the adult human brain, the hippocampus, was actually actively creating new neurons throughout life. Um, now recently, that has, and by recently, I mean uh, pre, pre in the year before COVID, um, <laughs> this had come under some debate. Um, and uh, some labs had shown evidence that there was new, no uh, adult hippocampal neurogenesis um, past like early adolescence. So there's a right around puberty that it, you see like a really heavy drop off in, in complete um, dearth of, of the production of new neurons. Um, it's, it's relatively strongly debated, even still, even though it's been kind of like a year and a half to two years since those findings came out. Um, but I, I think that there's still 
a necessity and a need for hippocampal stem cell research and, and subventricular zone stem cell research um, because we need to know what these cells are doing and how they're interacting with their environment. Um, and that is super important, even though it might not be a direct one-to-one -one correlation from mouse to human, because most things never are anyways. Um, it's important to know that these cells can have an effect in these brain regions, even if they're not necessarily there in humans or not. So something else I was also just thinking about in lab mice compared to wild captured mice that were um, looked at, there are differences in um, neurogenesis. And I was wondering if you could um, touch on that as well. Yeah, so to the best of my knowledge, you actually don't see a ton of hippocampal neurogenesis in mice that live in the wild. Um, and this is likely because, I mean, essentially they have very boring environments. They, like they're just in a blank cage kind of by themselves, maybe with one other, uh, a roommate or two. Um, and when you compare that to a mice that, mouse that's living in the wild, constantly searching and hunting for food, these are mice that are always using their hippocampi. They're always stimulated. Whereas our mice to keep, um, to keep the variables from experiment to experiment as low as possible, we keep them in rather dull environments. Um, and that is basically just a control so that you have a baseline for every mouse that you do an experiment on. However, as such, these mice aren't super stimulated. Therefore, um, when we do put them through very basic stimulation tests, uh, such as exercise or environmental enrichment, you see this huge explosion of, of neurogenesis. But that could just be because the mice we have are bored all the time and don't really have much to do. Um, there is still underlying adult neurogenesis in wild mice. Um, it's just we don't see as big of explosions when we do these manipulations like exercise and, and environmental enrichment because they already lead enriched lives. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting um, translational topic to touch upon, especially when considering results in these fields. Um, that it's just, it's very important to consider in animal research in general, as we've spoken about in, um, in the past. I, th I think it also speaks well to, um, a aging people. Um, so we have the tendency to take our elderly and put them into hospice or homes where they all kind of live together, but there's not a lot of enrichment, enriched environment in these places. Um, and that can lead to significantly faster uh, uh, mental decline because there's just no stimulation. And like, it just gives you something to think about, right? Um, as, as through this national lockdown, we've all kind of been less stimulated than normal, just like really doing your best every day to just like trying new tasks or just working on improving your mental capacity is super important and will definitely lead to better uh, longevity and, and mental age as you age. Is it thought that hippocampal neurogenesis um, tapers off with age? Yeah, so you definitely get a, a so you have a stark decline after um, a few years into life. So like early adolescence, preteen, that area, you see a pretty steep decline. Um, and then uh, as as you continue to age, there's just a much more gentle but um, prolonged uh, lessening of neurogenesis in the aged brain. And that's in humans and rodents? Yes, in both. And are there sex differences seen in this? So I am, I am not an expert in sex differences, uh, not nearly as much as um, yourself in the Lunar Lab or our 
coworkers in the lens lab. Um, <laughs> but to the best of my knowledge, there isn't a real big difference in um, stem cells in, in, when it comes to sex. Um, however, I've read a couple of papers that uh, suggests that there's small differences in proliferation and survival based on the estrus cycle in females. Um, I'm not sure how validated that is or how well known it is. Um, this is kind of just like scratching from memory a while back. Uh, the, so there could be a few small differences um, based on estrus cycle. However, like the net total difference isn't huge between male and female mice. Um, I should say with the caveat that my, my previous statement was specifically adult hippocampal neurogenesis. Um, I'm not I don't do any sort of adolescent neurogenesis work or like uh, um, fetal neurogenesis work or neurodevelopment. Uh, I'm pretty sure that there are differences about when, like the timing of things, uh, but I am by no means an expert in that. We need to reach out to Dr. Chloe Page and uh, Dr. Dr. Lars Nelson. Oh yeah, Dr. Lars Nelson as well, our recent graduates. Um, <laughs> Okay, so you recently published a paper. Um, can you tell us what it's about? Yeah, so it's not, it's not your traditional experimental design where you have a hypothesis that I'm going to manipulate this gene and then look at the effects of, of the loss of this gene on the cell population or behavior. Um, it's more of an examination of a current method methodology in the field of stem cell uh, research, but in the field of mouse genetic models, generally speaking. So we examined the um, Cree-ERT2 model. Um, and so uh, this model is used to, uh, th this model is used to alter um, genetics and in, in specifically in mice at this point. Um, and Cree is uh, short for Cree recombinase. Cree recombinase is an enzyme that um, excises um, portions of the genome between two LOXP sequences um, in, in mouse models. Um, in our mouse, uh, since we're studying a cell type that we specifically have to manipulate uh, at uh, a point in adulthood, um, because if you mess with, with um, stem cells during development, um, that can have a lot of ramifications that aren't specific to adult neurogenesis. So to specifically time this to adulthood, um, Cree is bound to an estrogen receptor. This estrogen receptor keeps Cree recombinase um, outside of the nucleus. And then once um, tamoxifen is administered, which is a synthetic estrogen, um, once the synthetic estrogen is administered, it allows Cree to translocate into the nucleus and excise out whatever specific part of the genome that you have flanked by those LOXP sequences. So this is a super commonly used tool for conditional gene knockdown or alteration, I should say. Um, in our field and in many fields, um, in order to identify cells that have undergone genetic manipulation, you um, bind this, uh, first you bind this Cree uh, sequence to a promoter. Um, in this case, the promoter that we used was um, the nesting promoter. So that means that this Cree-ERT2 construct was only specifically in uh, neural stem cells. And uh, so that means that gene recombination only occurs in neural stem cells. And then to identify the, the specific neural stem cells that have undergone this gene um, variation, uh, you also couple this mouse with a mouse that has something called a stop-floxed 
um, fluorescent reporter. So a stop fluorescent reporter, when Cree, you know, comes in and excises out that stop gene, um, the cell will then start producing this genetic, uh, this fluorescent reporter in glowing whatever color you, you want it to be. Uh, uh, the most common is something like GFP or M-cherry. Um, so these two kind of, uh, these two tools are combined together so that when you give the mice tamoxifen, the target gene is excised out and the color gene is turned on. So, so the theory is that when the color gene is turned on, you have lost that genetic sequence or manipulated that genetic sequence that was your target. Um, and it was largely assumed that this was like a perfect one-to-one -one correlation. So whenever you have color, that means the gene is knocked down in that specific cell. And in a similar cell, like the one next to it, if there is no color expression, that means the gene is still there. Um, and this is a fairly commonly used tool, uh, especially in the field of stem cell research, which is what I know best, um, to um, look at cell autonomous, cell autonomous gene effects. So when cell A is producing um, this gene compared to cell B, which will be a specific color that is not producing this gene, what happens to those two cells in the brain at the same time? Um, and for quite a few reasons, we thought that that might not necessarily be the case, that the fact that a cell was growing green uh, did not necessarily mean that the gene had been knocked down um, with 100% overlap. Um, so what we did was we combined two fluorescent reporters, stop blocks fluorescent reporters, and just gave mice tamoxifen to see what happened. And what we found is that the fluorescent reporters um, did not overlap very well. Um, there was actually only about a 50% positive rate, so either false or sorry, um, true positives and true negatives. Um, and this could be a relatively big problem if you're looking at cell autonomous effects because it means you cannot accurately predict that a cell that is glowing green has undergone gene knockdown or undergone the gene knockdown that you predicted it to. Um, and that can really skew, skew your data. Damn. <laughs> that, so you're like definitely rocking the boat with uh, proving that it's not a one-to-one. -one. Yeah, and it, it was, um, so I, I presented the, uh, so <laughs> I, we were working on the manuscript and everything, and we had submitted it to um, go under review at eNeuro, um, and like that week, I was presenting at SFN too with all the data from the paper. And I was so afraid that I was just going to get torn to shreds from people that had used this method. Um, because like I said, uh, just in neural stem cells, there had been four publications in the last six months that I had been working on the project using this method. So like it's, it's common, right? And I was really afraid that people were just gonna come rip me apart about it. And honestly, the best thing happened. Uh, the people that, uh, one of the, the original owner or people that produced the mouse line came up to me and talked about like how it was good research and like that they had seen other similar things. And like multiple researchers came up to me and talked to me about like, this was good that we were showing this and like people really need to consider this when they're designing their mouse models. So it ended up being a really positive experience for something that I was super nervous about. Yeah, I mean, that's awesome that you got, that that reception was the way that it was because I would be afraid. <laughs> yeah, um, 
and it's not so it's not to say that people using this mouse model will never get the effect that they're looking for however you just have to have a large effect size right so like if you're you're if your reasoning is that all the green cells are going to die when we knock down this specific gene, like, yeah, you probably won't, like, you'll see that effect, right? Um, because there just won't be any more green cells there. However, if, you're, if, if you think that there's going to be small changes in the way those cells interact with their microenvironment, it's going to be really hard to differentiate, um, like, like, smaller little effects between green and non-green cells at that point. Um, so, because I'm a hormone person, um, I'm, I'm always, it's always in the back of my head that tamoxifen is an estrogen mm. and estrogens have been known to have genomic and non-genomic effects. Um, so how, how do you account for this in your research? So, um, <laughs> do you account? I, so <laughs> I would say that largely people don't account for that. Um, and you kind of have to take that as it is just like people like we give cfcno for dreads um and that can have that you know uh gets metabolized into clozapine and has can potentially have effects that way right um tamoxifen is definitely not good it has an effect on these mice um and that is outside of the gene that you are manipulating um it's just something that you have to consider when using methodologies like this like every method that we use is going to have a toll it's just controlling for those as best as you can. Um, in terms of the genomic effects of estrogen, I have no idea what it, it could possibly be doing. Um, it's just all of our, like, so we have wild type and control, or wild type and experimental mice that are both treated with tamoxifen, and that's kind of to um, regulate for these potential off-target effects of your manipulation. Are there, this I guess is for my own benefit, are there other kinds of pre-recombinases that can be activated by ligands that are not tamoxifen? I, I believe so. Uh, I'm not positive because we just use the CRE-ERT2. Um, you can also use um, like a non-conditional uh, CRE. So it, it would just be like a nesting CRE mouse where the gene is always knocked down from like in development and everything. It depends on like what you're what your output is and what you'd expect to find. If you want to do a like a, a a knockdown in adulthood, then you would probably have to use this tamoxifen associated. Yes. I like I said, I believe that there are alternatives in terms of the Cree system. However, I'm not super familiar with them. Okay. Um, another thing that you can do um, is, you know, use a virus and uh, use a virus to chop out whatever genetic sequence you're looking for. Um, however, that has its own, like, obvious, very broad effects because, uh, at least in the brain, you would be doing um, open head surgery on mice to <laughs> get this virus into the cells. Um, so there, it's all about cost, risk, um, assessment really like how big of an effect your manipulation is going to have on these mice and if you're okay with that um, because at the end of the day we have to do these manipulations to to learn what we need to learn for kind of like a one sentence maybe two sentence summary of everything that we talked about why the fuck should we care about all of this like bring a big picture yeah, as scientists, we should care about our methodologies. Um, just because something is 
used commonly doesn't mean it's necessarily accurate. And you should just always do, you should do the critical thinking before you start an experiment as to what the intended purposes of your experimental design are and the potential, um, the potential drawbacks of those methodologies. And I think that's the biggest takeaway for scientists generally from, from my research, or from, from this publication at least. I like that, that's good. So, so what would you say is the biggest problem, the, the largest obstacle to overcome? In your for, for this specific study or as a scientist in general? How about both? Okay, for this specific study, uh, actually the fact that this method is slightly inaccurate was the biggest hurdle for me. So like the fact that this was a published paper that I did uh, makes it a little bit harder to do my thesis work, uh, which was based on this model. Um, so I kind of made uh, a little bit of a more uphill battle in my own, you know, dissertation work. Yeah. However, I would rather have that and know that I got more accurate um, re replicable results in the end. Like I would rather have another year of work to do than not be positive, not be certain that my results were accurate, or at least as accurate as it can be. Um, so that was my own personal dilemma with it, with this um, funding process. And then, I don't know, there's, it's kind of hard to talk about the problems in science as a whole, because there are problems that we just ignore a lot. Um, like, I mean, I touched on it briefly, but like work, having a good work-life balance is super difficult. And like, even as, as, as much as you try, it, there's just going to be a lot of time in grad school specifically that you're just not going to be, be able to have that. You're going to have a ton of long, horrible days and you kind of have to get through them. And, that, and that's not to say it's not worth it. I think it is exception, exceptionally worth it. Um, and then like how scarce funding is in science is really difficult too. I mean, such a small percentage of grants are getting funded. And as we know from, you know, all the discussion that we've been having, that's biasly going towards white males that have been in the, uh, that have been in the system for longer. It's really impacting not only our females, but our, our people of color too. And that's, that's something that needs to be fixed and could possibly be fixed relatively easily. Um, it's just, there, there are a lot of problems just under the surface in science that need to be addressed. Um, so I, I think dedicating a ton of time to any one of them is kind of difficult because they are rather glaring. Yeah, and I know even with all of the issues that you touched upon that we've had our own conversations about pretty large confounds in research of just like using animal models and the way that we house animals and um, when we were talking about wild mice versus um, lab mice, uh, how there are just these, this lack of translatable effect, which is understandable, but still um, a lack of effect. And then, you know, don't even get me started on the focus of my research. That's the, the dearth of understanding of the female brain and especially like the maternal brain. Um, so yeah, I definitely, I definitely sympathize with all of those. Um, it can be a little bit disheartening um, when you think of, of um, just take like Alzheimer's examples. We have a ton of mouse models of Alzheimer's that are, we get great effects for. Um, we see significant differences, but very few of the 
like clinically relevant things that are tried on mice in, in Alzheimer's is models um, end up getting translatably better for humans uh, that suffer from Alzheimer's. Um, it's just, you're doing all of these manipulations in a model that isn't that, like mice don't get Alzheimer's to the best that we know, right? So it's really hard to have that clinical translation and, they, and that can be a little disheartening, but it doesn't, the work that everyone does is still important and it's, it's, it's necessary to have this understanding of basic science so that someday it could hopefully be used in, in the clinical realm. Right, right. And additionally, that a lot of this basic science does end up contributing to the development of pretty salient research in humans. Um, so it's not to, I mean, it's, it ends up being sort of a pyramid model that we have uh, all of these translational projects going, but not all of them are able to make it to translation, but they're the backbone on which a lot of those projects that do make it are able yeah. to benefit humankind. So. Yeah, I, I would say that like basic science is definitely the foundation for for the pyramid, as you said. Like, you you can't you can't have good translational medicine without understanding how cells work in in lesser models because we can't. It would be super unethical to do these experiments that we do even in in non-human primates, let alone humans, which would be absolutely absurd. <laughs> well, maybe you can uh, get it done if you go to one of those clinics. Got <laughs> <laughs> this. This podcast will go to more of like a general science audience. So just I don't know. Stay informed. Stay well read. Um, <laughs> if you're if you're interested uh, in stem cell research, uh, look up the Kirby Lab. Nice. Thank you. Yeah, no problem. Thank you for having me.